Good morning and welcome again. Welcome to all of you watching online. Hey, I do want to encourage you to come next Sunday night, that vision night. It's really one of our most significant meetings throughout the year. And one of the things we'll be talking about is our upcoming leadership transition. So that'll be one of the topics that we'll want to flesh out in more detail on that night. So plan on joining us next Sunday evening, beginning at five o'clock, a really important time. Well, this morning, we're going to address a really difficult topic. Our title is The Bible and Abortion. As you know, this is a ballot issue. It is one of the watershed issues of our day. Uh, it's also a topic filled with landmines. Um, I'll uh, probably hit a few this morning, just warning in advance. Um, nonetheless, it is vitally important and cannot be ignored. Now, throughout our years, a few women have courageously spoken on this topic, describing their experience of having an abortion and the aftermath, the scars, the emotional toll, the quest for forgiveness. My first encounter with abortion happened when I was in high school. In the mid-70s, just a few years after Roe was enacted, I was barely 16, and a young girl uh, in our high school Bible study, a freshman, reached out to me because of the constant nightmares she was having after having received an abortion at just 14 or 15 years old. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not saying that's the experience of everyone, but I do know that my experience in this area is limited. And I'm gonna lean into those who have rolled up their sleeves and gotten to know this issue and the women who seek abortions from a street, uh, not just a textbook level. If you're new here, I don't want this to be a surprise to you. We are coming from the perspective that the baby growing in the womb is a life that needs to be protected. Now, the one nuance I would give here as we begin is that when I describe abortions this morning, I am describing what generally occurs. There are certainly exceptions that I believe the Bible supports, such as, uh, uh, these are uh, when the life of a mother is at risk. And there are exceptional medical cases when the parents should be able to make a common sense decision with their doctor. But once we talk, start begin, once we begin talking about exceptions, very quickly we find ourselves in a rabbit hole of questions that we cannot answer in a setting like this, nor do I have the expertise. The vast, vast number of abortions do not revolve around these exceptions, nor do they revolve around the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority revolve around the tragic cases of rape or incest. So when I describe abortion, what I'm talking about this morning is the overwhelming majority of cases where abortion is sought because someone, someone, the mother, the parents, a boyfriend, can't envision caring for that baby or the life change that a new baby will require. So here's our outline for this morning. Let me just, would you throw that up, Andrea? This is our outline. And I just, again, want to tell you, it's going to be a different kind of message this morning. We're going to cover a lot of different ground. If you were ever going to take notes, I know some of you will not, but if you were ever going to take notes, this is the morning to do it. <laughs> 
because we are going to cover a lot of ground and, and get into some different areas. There's going to be a lot of subpoints this morning that you may want to write down, but here are the four things we're going to talk about. Number one, what does the Bible say about abortion? Number two, what is the current reality? How can we wrap our heads around what's really happening on a street level? Thirdly, what should be our response inside the church? And then fourthly, what should be our response outside the church to our culture and our city? Well, this is as good as time as any to pray. <laughs> and um, I also want to include in my prayers this morning to pray again for Israel and the Middle East. As well, we have two partners that are there. One is in Turkey, and another is in a Middle East region, which we don't disclose. Uh, the Shrogrins on the latter, and Angelica Ricci on, is in Turkey. So I also want to include them in our prayers this morning for their safety and uh, for their witness as well. Will you join me in praying together? Father, thank you this morning that we come together as a community of brothers and sisters who care for one another and care for our community and care for our city. You have called us, God. We remember this morning our two greatest callings, the two greatest commands, God. We are, Father, we are called to love you with our whole being and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray this morning, God, that we could, uh, what we talk about this morning, what we convey this morning, what we communicate this morning could move the needle for all of us in those areas to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray, Father, here together as the gathered spiritual community, we pray for Israel. We pray for, Lord, innocent non-combatants on all sides. Father, we pray for justice. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for a just resolution. Father, we ask you in Christ's name for those who are even now under duress and stress through it. God, may they turn to you and turn to Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for the Shrogrins and for Angelica who find themselves living there right now in the middle of all this. And we pray that you would be their strength, their security, their protection, their comfort. And Lord, might what they're going through lead to conversations about your sovereignty, your love, and who you are, Jesus. And we lift them up to you in Christ's name today. Amen. 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 Okay. What does the Bible say about abortion? Our first question of our outline. Now, at first, we might be confused on this question because nowhere in the Bible is the word abortion used. And should we take from this silence that the Bible is ambiguous or non-committal on abortion? One Old Testament and ancient Near East scholar wrote this, and by the way, this guy has PhD, PhDs on Egypt, Assyria, an amazing expert by the name of Meredith Klein. He wrote the most significant thing about abortion legislation and biblical law is that there is none. It was so unthinkable that an Israelite woman should desire an abortion that there is no need to mention this offense in the criminal code. So to answer our question, what we can do, though, is draw principles from the Bible that relate to an unborn child. Let me mention six of these principles. Number one, all human life is sacred. 
We talked about this last week. Genesis 1:27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Simply put, God is the creator and we are his creation. Life itself is a gift from him. And our worth is not the net result of our productivity. Now, what does this mean with respect to justice? What does the creation ethic mean with respect to justice? We infer from this that our rights come from God and not the state. Now, that is significant. If our rights come from God, there is a divine weight anchoring them. If they are granted by the state, they can be taken away based on who is in power. They are no longer inalienable. You see, our country's founders recognized this. And they were concerned about it, concerned enough to ground all human rights in the belief that we were created by God. Now, no doubt, they applied it imperfectly. Nonetheless, what they believed helped future generations apply these rights more equitably. So the question we must ask is, if life begins at conception, do not unborn children have those same rights given by God? Let's go to the second principle, and that is that children are a gift. We don't earn them or merit them. Psalm 127.3, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Now, this flows naturally from our first point. Parents join with God in the co-creation of new life. And according to the Bible, that little life is sacred simply because it is a living being. Now, babies come to us shrouded in mystery. How does that life grow inside the womb? We receive them as blessings of God. They are not commodities. Parents don't go to the supermarket and order a child, picking one off the shelf like they do a box of cereal or a brand of coffee. Parents don't, at least not yet, select in advance their baby's gender, color of eyes, potential height or physical strength, and they cannot yet choose a violinist over an athlete or carpenter or fast food worker. No. We receive in mystery what God gives. Now, I hope the implication of such potential commodification in the future is clear to you. What will happen when human beings seek to control every part of the birthing process and we, rather than God, dictate which human lives have value and which don't? Somewhere, somewhere in the world, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, is twitching in his grave. A third principle from the Bible relating to the unborn. We are called to protect the weak and vulnerable. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and fare judgely. Defend the rights of the poor and needy, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 31. Now, the debate around abortion has changed significantly in the last few decades. Very few people contest the biological fact that life begins at conception. 
The microscopic zygote joining sperm and eggs holds all the potentialities of life. And his or her small size is not a factor in determining their humanness. If we agree the baby is a life, an innocent life, who is smaller? Who is more vulnerable? Who has no voice to speak for themselves? Are we not compelled to defend such innocence? A fourth principle, inducing a premature birth through reckless behavior was punishable under Old Testament law. Exodus 21, in the long string of laws in Exodus, Moses wrote this, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay for his life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now that latter punishment ethic is a whole conversation and sermon in itself. There's actually a mercy to it, but we don't have time to get in there today. And I also get that this is a hotly debated passage. Some who are pro-abortion cite this as evidence that when harm is, harm is inflicted, this only refers to the woman's life. But many scholars believe this is way too limited of an interpretation. Time-tested interpretation principles indicate that the harm here is not limited to the mother, but applies equally to the unborn child. Thus, the rights of the unborn baby were regarded as the same as the mother's. One scholar put it this way, there is no ambiguity here whatever. What is required is that if there should be an injury either to the mother or to her children, the injury shall be avenged by a like injury to the assailant. If it involves the life of the premature baby, then the assailant shall pay for it with his life. There is no second class status attached to the fetus under this rule. Gleason Archer. Let's go to the fifth principle. Every unborn child is a wonder. Every unborn child is a wonder and is known to God. David wrote this. This is a, what I'm going to say. This is a consistent testimony of Scripture. And let me give some examples. David wrote Psalm 139. We looked at this last week. For you created my inmost being, God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Job 10, 8 through 12, Job wrote, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinew. You gave me life and showed me kindness. We even have this story from the Gospels. Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with the baby, 
who will become John the Baptist. She visits her cousin Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, and Luke records Elizabeth as saying this, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, the six-month-old baby, leaped for joy. Every unborn child is known by God and is a wonder. Now, the sixth principle is similar, and I like how one pastor said it. In every unborn child, God maps a lifetime. Psalm 139, verse 15. Again, this is, continues what David wrote. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What is the secret place? What does the metaphor depths of the earth point to? It is, of course, the womb. That mysterious place where life unfolds. Even then, his or her days are planned. Now, the last two principles convey the same truth, that between God and the growing baby, there is intimacy, personal knowledge, love, care, attention, a detailed plan. Reaching back to last week, this reveals that our body is not just a clump of molecules without purpose coming together by chance. No, we have a design. Our bodies, and not just our minds, reflect a divine decree from God, a God deeply knowledgeable of us and deeply interested in us. A God who looks on the developing baby that he has formed with his hands as he did Adam and Eve and repeats, Behold, it was very good. Commenting on these verses, Randy Alcorn writes, Each person, regardless of his parentage or handicap, has not been manufactured on a cosmic assembly line, but is personally formed by God. So, to wrap up this first point, what does the Bible say about abortion? All human life is sacred. Children are a gift. We are called to protect the weak and vulnerable. Inducing a premature birth through reckless behavior was punishable under Old Testament law. Every unborn child is known by God and is a wonder. And in every unborn child, God maps a lifetime. We could add a seventh, and that is the Bible commands us not to take innocent life. I would ask you to consider these. If you're just coming into this, if you've not thought about this, if you're just coming into these arguments and these thoughts, I would ask you to consider them not individually, but the cumulative effect, the aggregate effect, coalescing them into a single argument that speaks convincingly for the culture of life, the value of life, especially directed towards the unborn child. Now, to add to this, the earliest Christians, because abortion and infanticide were rampant in Greek and Roman culture, they did address abortion specifically. The Didache, the written document, the Didache, is considered to be the earliest and most authoritative guide to Christian practice, aside from the Bible. There were actually some that wanted to actually canonize it in the fourth century. Many believe it was written in the first century. In section 2.2 it says, 
You shall not murder a child, whether by abortion or by killing it once it is born. Many church fathers, many prominent church fathers bore uh, like witness to this. In light of all this, friends, in light of all this, I believe, we believe, abortion to be a grievous wrong, a grievous sin against both the unborn child and against the God whose image that they bear. It is not a small matter. It is not a small matter. But let me say it here very clearly. God is bigger. God is bigger than our sin. And there is nothing that we can do to move him beyond his love and grace. We do not believe, as some say or some think, this is the unforgivable sin. And it can feel that way. Jesus bore on his person the sin of abortion so that if you had one friend or if you encouraged one, then like any other sin, bring it to him, confess it, repent from it, grieve it, and receive his promise of forgiveness. You know, we can go sideways two different, we can get sideways on this forgiveness thing two different ways when it comes to abortion. One is we can treat it too casually, be quick to claim forgiveness, and not fully enter into what is really happening inside of our hearts. Or we can think we are beyond forgiveness, God won't forgive me, and continue to live a life racked with regret and guilt and shame. And friends, I hope you know, and if you're here for the first time, I want to communicate to you that we as your pastors are always available to talk. Or if you are a woman and not comfortable talking to a man, uh, reach out to Aaron Hendricks, our women's director, or some of our excellent women leaders who have received training in healing care. Or we can refer you, if you don't want to speak to someone inside the church, we can refer you to someone outside the church. But as with other very intimate and hard to talk about issues, we urge you not to suffer in silence. Don't suffer in silence, okay? All right, so that's our first big point, what we believe the Bible says about abortion. Let's now talk about our current reality so we can try to have the right response. In this section, I'd like to draw upon the words of a pastor named Mike Woodruff. His sermons are made available by Christianity Today. And I cite him because he has taken time to learn about this issue at a street level. He has had conversations with those who work at Planned Parenthood and crisis pregnancy centers, with those who want to protect a woman's right to choose, and those who counsel women suffering from post-abortion-related depression. He has talked with women who've had abortions, men who've paid for them. He has spoken with those who work with high-risk pregnancies and those in low-income clinics. He has spoken with legislators and authors on this subject. And here are the realities he has discovered. Number one, there is no longer much debate around when human life begins. I mentioned this already. The debate today now concerns if and when a child has any rights. It is referred to as 
personhood theory. And the question that is not now being asked, not, does, not when does life begin, but when does the unborn child become a person? There's tremendous implications to that. Secondly, he discovered the need to keep abortion legal to protect the life of the mother has declined. It is now generally acknowledged that there are very few cases when a pregnancy has to be terminated to protect the life of the mother. There have been tremendous advances in neonatal care. Thirdly, the pro-life side is interested in the mother. Today there are several thousand, there are lots of people and groups willing to help women in crisis carry their babies to terms. Many of you in this room presently volunteer or support crisis pregnancy health centers. Fourthly, everyone loses an abortion. In every abortion, a child dies, a woman is wounded, and the soul of a nation is diminished. He argues, and I agree, that the woman loses as well. Are abortion rights good for women? The statistics regarding depression, the mental and emotional impact on women who have had abortions tell a different story. Further, the majority of babies aborted are female, and legalized abortion has freed men to accept even less responsibility for a child. You might hear a man say, oh, I'll pay for an abortion, but I will not help in raising the child. This, friends, is our upside-down world of taking actions without accepting any consequence. Fifthly, abortion is seldom a choice. It's seldom about a choice. Let me explain. Sometimes it is. Sometimes women use abortion as a form of birth control or choose not to carry a baby to term because it's not convenient. But when you look at the statistics, it is almost, it is almost always those who are poor and scared. Most report they do not have any other option. They say they are being forced by men, parents, or circumstances. One doctor who works at an inner city clinic said the, that abortion was just a symptom of a bigger problem and that most women she sees has one thing in common, and that is a lack of self-worth. And pregnancy, the pregnancy, is often the direct result of that. Woodruff quotes someone I really respect, a woman named Frederica Matthews Green. I actually began reading her material about 10 to 15 years ago. Matthews Green is a Catholic writer, and she has written prolifically and compassionately on this topic for a long time. And this is what she wrote after traveling the country, interviewing women who have had abortions. Here's what she wrote. The core reason I heard was, I had an abortion because someone I loved told me to. Again and again, I learned that women had abortions because they felt abandoned, they felt isolated and afraid. As one woman said, I felt like everyone would support me if I had an abortion, but if I had a baby, I'd be alone. I felt like I didn't have a choice. If only one person stood by me, even a stranger, I would have had the baby. She actually was quoting someone there who spoke that to her. 
And then she concludes her comments by saying, no one wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion like an animal caught in a trap, wants to gnaw off its own leg. And again, this is coming, these thoughts are coming from a perspective of people that are thoroughly pro-life. And yet this helps us to understand the street level situation of what's really happening in our cities and in our places. And certainly it's a wide concern and a wide experience, but this is part of it. Okay, so having looked at what the Bible says about abortion, having looked at the current reality, then what should be our response? First, I want to speak to the church. Can't really control completely what happens out there. Can't really control what happens here either. But I can be faithful. I can be faithful here. You can be faithful here. This is our first concern. This is our first priority. Number one, as a church, we need to teach the sexual ethics of the Bible. The wisdom and the counsel of the Bible is good. God is for us, not against us. He is after our joy. His commands lead to human freedom and flourishing. As we discussed last week, sex is designed by God. It is good, and it has the purpose of intimately connecting one man and one woman within the covenant of a lifelong promise. And we have to keep proclaiming the beauty of that story. It is a beautiful story. And we have to keep proclaiming it. And at the same time, we have to come against the wreckage of recreational and hookup sex. We have to believe in the wisdom of God. Even when our culture says sexual ethics, your sexual ethics are hopelessly unrealistic, archaic, are just outright crazy. Friends, consider the wisdom of God. If our culture accepted the biblical pathway, five out of six abortions would not take place. Five out of six abortions take place within a couple that is unmarried. Number two, the church must be a place people can run to and not run from. Alongside of what I just said, we cannot become a place where failure is met with rejection and condemnation. Now, I'm not aware of any that have taken place here. Perhaps they have, but I know they've taken place in other churches. How many abortions have taken place in Christian churches because of a parent's embarrassment or a daughter with firm evidence fears rejection and condemnation? We are all sinners and sin in various areas, but this one you can't hide when it leads to pregnancy. When someone fails in this area, young or older, they need to know that that baby and they in the church will be loved and cared for. You know, we do this for women we meet that we don't even know in crisis pregnancy centers. The men and women, if they fail, of our church need to have the same security. Thirdly, we need to keep encouraging and celebrating adoptions and fostering. We've done this been a part of our language. Many of you have done this. As a church, we've supported Orphan World Relief for many years. 
Many of you have volunteered for them as part of an overarching way of loving women and children, women and children who are in need and find themselves in desperate situations. Many of you have been a part of this. Fourthly, of course, we need to demonstrate concern for all the poor and vulnerable. We, do, we, we know this. This is a way of life called to us in the scriptures when we experience the grace of God as poor, naked, who have nothing to give to God. When we experience the grace of God, it changes our hearts towards the poor and vulnerable. And if your heart has not ever been changed towards the poor and vulnerable, it's likely you have not received or experienced the grace of God. This is part of the evidence that the grace of God has come into your heart and world. And so it should be reflected a concern for all the poor and the vulnerable, all that are without voice and are helpless. Yes, friends, it is vitally important to see souls saved into eternity. And that is part of our mission. But because the body also matters, our response to human suffering is also vitally important. Number five, if I'm counting correctly, I'm not sure I am. Number five. And that is lead with our gospel witness and love. Again, we're talking here about responses of the church to abortion. Lead with our gospel witness and with love. You know, the sermon that I've been referencing by Mike Woodruff was written in 2013. And it was actually nine years before Dobbs overturned Roe v. Wade. This is what he wrote in 2013. He says, fifth, we need to lead with love. We are going to have to overwhelm the culture with loving care. I am thankful for those who run for office or work in the courts. We desperately need thoughtful people in those spots. And our goal as citizens needs to be that everyone is protected in law and care for in life. I agree with that statement. It is part of our love your neighbor as yourself. But he writes, this is not ultimately a legal issue. And it will not ultimately turn with a legal solution. Here's what he wrote. If Roe was overturned tomorrow, it would go back to the states. There would be 50 debates going on. It's exactly what we're experiencing. It's one reason, friends, why when Roe was overturned, I was maybe not as celebratory as some of you would have preferred. But I recognize this. It's going to go back to the States, and it's going to be hot, and it could get worse. And in some ways, it has. He says, and just as significantly, he writes, the law would not do much to change the demand. What we need to see is people's hearts change, and that is not going to happen through the courts. Okay, now let me spend a little bit of time on this. This requires a little bit of conversation about this and I want you to really hear me on this this is really important that you see the balance and the tension of what I'm saying when we think about social and cultural change the changes that we long for okay when we think about social change the changes that we long for in our culture we are I am often guilty of making a false dichotomy you know what that is? 
It's like, it's like, it's, 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 it's either or. On one hand, we are called to lead with love and our gospel witness. And on the other hand, there is seeking to change laws through legal action. There is no need to set these two against each other. Okay? Do you understand that? Let me repeat that. There is no need to set these two against each other, as we often see, as I've done at points. This is not an either-or proposition. Both are important. We begin as a church with the rock-solid conviction, with the foundation that the way to change a culture is through gospel proclamation in word and deed. And right, this is a theological truth, all we can do is be faithful. We can't control what happens. It is up to the Holy Spirit to create the changes that we long for. But we can be faithful in our gospel proclamation in word and deed. If we seek legal change without it, we will fail and be frustrated. We will have ultimately put our trust in human beings. Okay? Now, conversely, when God changes us, when God fills our hearts with a sense of love and grace and mercy, what happens to us? We begin to love our neighbors, our community, our city, and we desire just laws that protect and defend the innocent. Thus, we are led to address the legal, political situations in our culture. Okay? Do you see the interdependence and the balance and the tension of both? It's not either or. It is both and. And for some of you on this latter point, for some of you, this desire to address what's happening legally or politically, it could, uh, your focus could reach a ministry level or even a vocational focus, okay? All right, let's go to our last part this morning. We have to keep moving here. So we just have talked about what does the Bible say about abortion? What is sort of the really street level feel of abortion? Now I've just described five things that would define our response as a church. What do we, the church is the priority. What, what must we do? And now I want to talk about our culture, our response to the culture. What can we do? Now, as I said, for some of you, this might be the kind of thing, this kind of area or other areas of injustice within our culture. This might be the kind of thing that draws you into the political or legal arena. Many of you remember a close friend, a good friend, Andy Douglas, uh, who attended our church for the last 10 years of his life. Andy was a, a very respected Supreme Court Justice uh, of Ohio. He authored over 900 opinions during his tenure. Uh, recently, this past summer, uh, the Supreme Court uh, had a, what they call a portraiture, where there's a, a portrait hung of Supreme Court justices. And Sue, his wife, asked me to go and to open and close uh, this ceremony in prayer. And what they did is they actually did this ceremony in the opening session of the court. 
And so I was able to pray both opening prayer and pray the gospel and closing prayer uh, as the Ohio Supreme Court opened in session. It was a beautiful, beautiful and an honor to be able to do. But Andy felt called and it was his, his, his drive for justice. It was his drive for justice that led him into a life of politics and law. Some of you may have that same calling and we encourage you to pursue it under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But for most of us, we, that'll not be the case, that level of passion or focus. What can we do? Well, as I've said, we can first live, communicate, and support the work of the gospel. Changed hearts, friends, for this issue to change, changed hearts is the tipping point. Changed hearts is the tipping point. Secondly, we can advocate for life when and where we can. And third, and I want to say this very clearly, as you think about entering into the, 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 the debate about abortion, I want to say this very clearly. We must not be silenced by the objection that we are imposing on others a religious view. Let me say that again. We must not be silenced by others raising the objection that we are only trying to impose our religion. Now, I want to say this for two reasons. Number one, the argument of protecting life from birth can be made without reference to religion. It can be articulated scientifically, philosophically, and constitutionally without any reference to God or religion. Secondly, remember, and again, this is going to require your attention here. It's going to require your attention. Remember that those who argue for abortion are also operating on a worldview that has faith-based assumptions. Hey, let me say it again. Those who argue for abortion are also relying on a worldview that is based on faith. Friends, this is unprovable. Their worldview insists on a mind-body dualism, saying that matter, the body, is a random collection of molecules without meaning or purpose, and that only the mind matters. When the body is soulless matter, then, here's how the worldview works out, when the body is soulless matter, we can manipulate it, alter it, escape it, exchange it, define when it becomes a person, or otherwise impose our will upon it. Friends, this is a worldview that you cannot put under a microscope and prove. They are also, that argument is also operating under worldview unprovable assumptions. Abortion is an extension of that worldview, saying that a life with all its potentialities is not a person and does not have rights. These are unproven assumptions, thus it is an arbitrary exercise of power. As a believer and as a citizen of this country, 
with a Christian worldview, you have every right to enter the public square from your perspective. And friends, the people that I know uh, from the pro-life view of things, none of them have the desire to create some full-throb theocracy or Christian government. None of them. Secondly, again, stick with me. In terms of the objection that you cannot impose your religion and that every abortion decision is a private family matter, I want to ask this question to you. If Abraham Lincoln, what if Abraham Lincoln had concluded slavery was a private family matter? Because really, that's how it was thought of prior to that. What if in the name of private family matter, he had refused to initiate the end of slavery. Now, I recognize slavery and abortion are very different, but what I'm getting after here is the mindset, the rationale, the justification. For after Lincoln died, and after his personal moral gravity was gone, the South essentially said to the North, during Reconstruction, slavery is a private family matter. Now Grant, who was an incredibly good president, and actually this action, if you've read his autobiography, this was his deepest regret of his life. But Grant, who at least in the beginning had eradicated the KKK, but the South consistently criticized Grant and the North for government overreach by keeping federal troops installed in the South. And after that constant criticism essentially wore down the will of Grant and the North, Grant brought the federal troops home. And thus began a virtually century-long reign of terror in the South for black men and women and for white sympathizers. Because, essentially, this is regarded as a private family matter. Okay, let me make my big point. You see, here's the reality, friends. Here is the reality. We all want government to impose on our privacy when we believe human rights and justice are at stake. Right? We believe that inside the life of the mother is an innocent baby with rights. And we aim to care for that baby along with their mother. But friends, we should not be left believing that we are the only ones making a religious argument while those advocating for abortion are simply being neutral. No, we all have worldviews, right? Let's be honest. We all have worldviews. They are based on some unprovable assumptions, but those worldviews are what inform us when we want the government to act. So the big story lesson is, don't be silenced. Don't be silenced. Now Christians, okay, how are we doing? How are we doing so far? No, no, no applause, no, I, I, don't, I don't want any applause. 
I don't want any applause. I just want to make sure you're understanding. You're understanding what I'm saying. It's really vital, uh, really important for you to understand our response to the culture. And for you as an individual follower of Jesus who advocates for life to not be afraid or ashamed or silenced on this view. You're a citizen of this state and you have a place in this state. Okay, all right, I have one more thing to say and then I'm gonna have David and um, uh, Summer come up and we're gonna sing together here before we leave this morning. Now I wanna say this very clearly again. I've, I probably used that preface a lot this morning but I want to say this very clearly. We here in this church, we recognize and we believe that when it comes to voting, when it comes to voting, that this is a matter of conscience and it, because it involves so many layers of things, including a believer's posture towards government and the government related to politics and our pastors recognize this is an area of conscience and it is not right for us as a pastor to use this bully pulpit to bind anyone's conscience, okay? Some of you have a, uh, some of you don't vote and see that as a biblical conviction and what I'm about to say is not meant to run over that conviction. Most of you, however, do have an understanding and conviction that part of your responsibility as a believer is to vote. And here's what we want to say this morning. Many of you are aware that issue one will enshrine abortion into our constitution. Much of the progress that has been made over many years may be and will likely be turned back if issue one passes. For the hands of legislators, since the law will be enshrined in the constitution, the hands of legislators will be tied. They must go by what's written, what the voters of Ohio have said. We as your pastors, consistent with what we said uh, previously, we urge you to study this issue, but we urge you to vote no on issue one. We do not believe it will serve women, serve children, serve families, serve individuals in the state of Ohio to have abortion, to be enshrined in our Constitution. Let me give you a few places to get more information on this. Number one, if you go to seethelanguage.com, you'll get a lot of very good, very clear, very concise information about issue one. Seethelanguage.com. It has the language on the, um, uh, of the amendment itself. Uh, there's some analysis of it. Uh, the analysis includes a woman, I forget her last name, her first name is Abby, about uh, she worked for Planned Parenthood up to seven years ago. She helped write legislation for Planned Parenthood. Of course, if you don't know, that's a, again, chief advocate for uh, abortion uh, here and around the country. And uh, seven years ago, Abby came to a place where she recognized that abortion was a horrible, terrible thing, and she left it. And she uh, is part of these informations to help us understand sort of why and how the language is what it is 
in this amendment. So look at that, see the language.com. And secondly, um, I want to encourage you, I'll just spend a moment on this. Um, my daughter's church, which is a largely African-American church, it's called uh, Hope City. It's uh, down in the southern part of Columbus. They are having a town hall about this issue on Tuesday night. I want to encourage you to go. As many of you know, black and brown babies are aborted at a much higher disproportionate rate than white babies. There is a group of black pastors, including my daughter's pastor, who have been outspoken and concerned about abortion for a long time. They've created, uh, they're very concerned about issue one. They are against it. And so they wanted to have a town hall for their churches. Again, largely African-American, but you'd be welcome to go. Uh, I've got a commitment. I would go otherwise. But this would be a great opportunity for you to learn more about the ins and outs of issue one and mix it up with some of your black brothers and sisters as well. And then finally, I do want to invite you, we'll be studying this issue in a more uh, intense way at our next leadership huddle. That's the first Monday of November, or uh, yeah, the 7th, I believe, from 12 to 2, as Alex said earlier. Um, we're going to particularly be looking at the concept of personhood theory, which is the really the crux of the debate today. Well, okay, we've said a lot, and I'm not really sure how, quite how to finish. But David, you can come on up, David and uh, Summer. What does the Bible say about abortion? What, like, what really happens at the street level? Um, what should be our response inside the church? And what should be our response to the culture? And I hope that you see that this is an issue that does impact all of us. It's an issue of the heart. And again, this morning, if you are one who is in need of forgiveness in this area, you had an abortion, you encouraged an abortion. As some of the women have shared in our church journey, forgiveness can be had, forgiveness can be experienced, healing can be experienced. It is not the un forgivable sin. And I think this morning, what I would hope for in our response this morning as a church, and I probably have not done a good job conveying this. What I would really hope for this morning is that our response would be one of weeping, one of lament, one of lament for the conditions that have been created in our culture that would make this decision seem like the only rational right decision to make. To weep for the conditions, the, the, just, the, the, out, just the, the, the lostness of our, the brokenness. I mean, if, if anything else, this reveals the lostness and the brokenness of our culture. I hope this morning that we can lament together. Allow Christ to work in and through us. To reach out to those women in our circle that maybe have experienced this or men who've abandoned their babies or men who encouraged it, parents who encouraged it. Let us weep. Let us lament that healing, healing from Jesus might come. Life from Jesus might come. Just sing about the goodness of God. Remember the assurance of God's love for us as we worship.
But let's allow the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts this morning. Search our own minds and our own consciousness this morning. Let him do his work in our lives. Let him bring that grace as we come to his poor sinners in need of mercy. That our hearts might be transformed towards all the poor and vulnerable. Let's stand and sing together.